Welcome, everybody, to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. This is Dr. Mario Sakas, and I pray that you're having an amazing day. Well, if you listen to this show, you know that we often talk about the way that psychology and faith integrate. And we always are trying to find what those points of connections are. Well, in today's episode, I want to dive deep into the conversation of what happens when those points of connection are not there. What happens when secular humanism infects psychology, when psychology loses its religion, and why is that important? Why should we care as people of faith? So joining me on the show today is Dr. Paul Vitz, Senior Scholar and Professor at Divine Mercy University. In case you didn't know this, Dr. Vitz is a legend in the Catholic psychotherapy world, and truly it is an honor to have him on the show. On today's episode, we have a wonderful conversation about the dangers of secular humanism in psychology, the need to have a proper understanding of the human person in order to be able to guide them through psychological issues, how self-actualization, which is often promulgated within the secular humanism, is impossible without God, and the role of suffering in our psychological development, and why self-giving is the essence of being a flourishing human person. Well, if you find this show helpful, then please, please, please leave a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. If you've enjoyed it, share on social media or just talk about it with your friends, because if it's been helpful to you, then I'm sure it'll be helpful to other people. So let's get into this conversation with Dr. Paul Vitz. Dr. Paul Vitz, welcome to the Always Hope Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, and I'm pleased to be here. Thank you so much for, for joining me on the show, as I was sharing with you just before, and as my listeners know, certainly that, that this topic of a Catholic integrated psychology or psychotherapy is something that has um, captured my imagination and really has been the source of, of my career, you know, and the lectures that I offer and the way that I practice and, and even through this podcast. And, and in many ways, folks like me are indebted to, to the trailblazers like yourself, um, who have been articulating this message and uh, finding the the uh, and offering, I should say, a, a Christian critique of modern psychology um, for for many many years, and so um, it is a sincere pleasure, and I want to say this on air: sincere honor and pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, well, thank, thank you. Thank you. It's it's my pleasure and honor to be on it. No, well, thanks, thanks. So you've been doing this for a long time, right? Uh, yes, pretty long. Uh, I started in psychology, let's say, well, let's say 1960. Okay. But I was an atheist at the beginning. So my psychology in the first, say, uh, 10 years or so was secular. I was a cognitive psychologist, uh, experimental psychologist. Got my degree at Stanford, and then shortly afterwards, my first... Uh, assistant professorship, at least uh, at a university, was at New York University. And I was there now for, for many decades after that. Hmm. But my conversion didn't occur until about uh, 1975, something like that. And so that's changed me from being a cognitive psychologist doing work on how we learn sequences of events and visual perception and so forth to the whole relationship of the faith to psychology. Hmm. And so since about 1975, that's what I've been doing. Oh. Uh, my first publication on that topic came out about 1977, but I had started a little bit before then. Hmm. 
Praise the Lord. So I've been around for a long time, and when I was beginning, there wasn't anything like what we have now, President. Yeah, that's amazing. So you had your conversion in 1975. Roughly, um, I mean, you know, it took yeah. place over some, sure. some time period. <clears throat> and that was to back to Christianity or to Catholicism specifically? It was, uh, <clears throat> I'd had a very vague Protestant uh, background. Uh, went to the university, became an atheist for roughly 19, went from the age of 18 to about the age of 38 or something like that. Um, then came back to uh, the faith, Christianity, about, about around 1975, and a few years later became a Catholic. And uh, But I've been in touch with and been very much helped by evangelical Protestants along the way, and I have a great respect and admiration for them. Most certainly. Well, how was that experience for you? I imagine that, like, if... You said atheist and then steeped into an atheist psychology, then coming to believe in the Lord and then coming even more into a, an understanding of him through the Catholic faith. How did that start changing your your understanding of, of your practice and your research and just even the, the field of psychology as a whole? Well, first of all, it began by making me criticize things that were being done in the secular world. And what I would criticize were either their, their simplicities, where they were overlooking important other aspects of the person, or their implicit philosophy or value system, which they didn't identify and defend. Mm -hmm. And so my first um, uh, criticisms were of exactly that. And it was focused on particularly the self-psychology of Carl Rogers in which I pointed out he had forgotten all about our the importance of relationships. He'd forgotten about the virtues entirely. He'd um, ignored many other aspects like reason and so forth in psychology. And more importantly, he proposed that his way of life was a, not just a psychotherapy, but a philosophy of life that everybody should have and that self-actualization in that secular sense was the whole meaning of uh, life and that everybody should come on board. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is not psychology. In fact, it's not even defensible as a moral position in many ways. Right. But in right. any case, it's certainly not science. And so that was my first uh, position, being very critical of psychology as found in the humanist tradition. But psychology over the years has, in some ways, gotten better. Mm -hmm. And in other ways, gotten worse. <laughs> but uh, I, if you want, I can go over the ways it's gotten better and then some of the ways it's yeah. gotten worse. Well, I think I want to stop here just, I mean, I, I remember when, when I was going through my grad school and, and learning this stuff for the first time. And, and even in a, as an undergraduate, I shifted from biology to psychology and, and learning it. I mean, I just, I just loved the field, loved the understanding of the person, loved being able to dive into science to understand how the person works and behaves and ticks. But certainly even in my, in my grad school and then even in, into my doctoral program, I, I, I saw shifts in some of the ways that we thought about these things. So while there was a, a, well, I would say, I would be more blunt and say actually what I saw was a shift in a way that that psychology became even more 
antagonistic or hostile to people of faith, um, or I should say, at least in the counseling profession, so I can speak about it in, in, in that nature. Um, but nevertheless, but just going back to the point about about Rogers, uh, the point you make is 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 right on. You know that self actualization as its own end um, is is uh, apart well apart from any sort of criteria. And I think this is what you argue in in, in your book. You know, psychology is religion that. Apart from anything to guide the self, how can the self even be actualized? How can that even be a notion if there's no, if there's nothing that even moves us in any sort of direction? Or if you're saying that direction in and of itself is completely ambiguous or completely relativistic, then the actualization of the self is nonsensical in that regard. That there's no journey, there's right. no, there's no track that we're moving towards. And uh, and while certainly. Um, we, we have seen growth in certain of a limitation. I guess we can acknowledge the limitation of Rogers's, um, you know, theories there. But still, a lot of those notions are are very popular and very much in vogue, even in 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 the cultural widespread cultural context. So, I guess I would like to yes, hear more. Psychology has gotten a little wiser, but the culture is still way behind. Correct. Correct. So, in what ways do you feel that? Um, things have gotten better, even in the field itself. Okay, in psychology, yeah. here are some of the things that have been uh, improvements. Uh, first, historically, was the introduction of reason and thought. And this came with the cognitive behavioral therapists. Um, people like Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis. Now, Albert Ellis was a very militant atheist, but he was introducing reason and thought and rationality into uh, understanding mental problems. And in doing that, he did a very positive thing. He was always surprised at how many Baptist ministers loved his courses, <laughs> even though, in fact, he would make nasty remarks about, about religion them. all the time. <laughs> but they would let that go over their heads because they said, look, he's brought conscious mind and the present situation and reasonable thinking into the fore of, of, of getting over our, our psychological problems. Mm -hmm. And Aaron Beck did that too, but he was not quite such a militant atheist or anything like that. Then the next thing that happened is they discovered, in quotes, the importance of interpersonal relations. Mm -hmm. For Rogers, it was always the autonomous individual. There was never any notion that as persons, we come into existence through our relationships. I mean, that's certainly true of starting with the infant, the newborn. Mm -hmm. yep. It's out of relationships that we come into existence. And that continues not just from the time we're born to the time we're six or something like that. It continues all our life. It's out of interpersonal relationships that we continue to grow and develop. And with our wives, wife or with our children or whatever, this is how we grow. Or with our husband or with our friends, with our colleagues, um, other relatives, whoever they might be, bring us into new relationships that cause us, if everything is going pretty well, to grow and to flourish. Yeah. So interpersonal psychology came in. After that, well, what else came in? Oh, they discovered the emotions. Mm -hmm. Imagine psychology discovering the emotions. And, <laughs> uh, anyway, so the emotional focus therapy came in. Yep. And then after that, they discovered, believe it or not, uh, thanks to um, Robert Enright and uh, Everett Worthington, they discovered the importance of forgiveness in psychotherapy as an intervention. 
Mm-hmm. So those were all expansions of the notion of the person and how they, a person could be helped. And then the last one to come in, or the next to last one, was um, spirituality. Now, granted, it was sort of new agey, mm-hmm. but at least it meant somehow or other religion had some positive meaning for, for mental health, positive meaning for being psychologically better off. Prior to that, the general understanding was that religion was a, was a neurotic problem, not a positive solution to your, to your issues. Right. And finally, the most recent contribution has been uh, positive psychology through Martin Seligman and others, mm-hmm. where, again, psychology has finally discovered the virtues. Mm-hmm. My Dominican friends just say, well, you know, after 2,500 years, it's about time you discovered them. But my answer to them is, that's true. We finally discovered them. But after 2,500 years, after discovering them, you haven't told us anything about them. <laughs> you haven't even told us if you can learn them. And if so, how and when? So anyway, so the virtues have come in. And uh, by the way, that means psychology has started to move from determinism, which is always focused on the source of our problems, to teleology, which is the source of our goals, our movement, our choice, our choices for the future. Mm-hmm. So psychology doesn't realize it, but it's moving out of the natural history uh, deterministic mold into teleology, into how we want to live, what we're choosing for our future. That's what it's moving into. So it's rediscovering, if you will, Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> Finally again. But um, those are all on the positive side. Well, let's stop there before we get to the negative side then. Just, just to say that it, it is beautiful to see that. Um, and I'm, uh, I've had Everett Worthington on the podcast actually to talk about self-forgiveness. So I was grateful to have him on the show also. And uh, I, in terms of interpersonal relationships, emotionally focused therapy, I, that's what I use EFT for, for my couples counseling. And I've recently been, been a discover, I've discovered a positive psychology here in the last few years and have dived into that. And I love the fact that I agree that it's like, you know, this understanding is recapturing a virtue and a recognition that, that there is, you, we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater and recognizing that all these traditions have existed and have, and have laid out um, a foundation of what the person is and what happiness looks like. And so now we actually have research and science to support and say that, yes. listen, the hedonic path isn't going to lead to complete happiness. We can now, we can now look at this scientifically. Um, that the good life requires certain sacrifices to have to be made. And the good life, the happy life, is one that actually requires uh, a certain congruence within oneself between the behaviors and the actions and your, your conscience and, 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 and having a certain uh, understanding of that, which yes. is, as you said, moving away from a, a self-determinism to a theological lens where we're actually we're moving towards something. There is a goal here. And we can kind of begin articulating what what that goal is, even at a even at a natural kind of philosophical level, without even getting yes. into anything religious, um, which is certainly encouraging to see. Um, so, but some of the negatives that that you're seeing now with with uh, oh uh, yes, some of the negatives. Um, well, one other positive I mentioned before we go on. Um, when I was first beginning all this critique, there weren't many Christian psychologists around. Hmm. Now there are 
thousands of psychotherapists and counselors trained in their discipline who are uh, also Christian. So there's a whole group of people out there interested in this that didn't exist before. So that's positive. The yeah. last of my positive points. <laughs> and now the negative. Um, there are two major ways in which modern contemporary psychology is now becoming very negative and for a Christian and could get worse. One is with human sexuality. Mm -hmm. The uh, pushing of everything from, uh, well, the notion that sexuality now is, you know, the transsexual movement, all of this, the idea that, I mean, let's be very frank. In the scriptures, it's very clear. God created us, created us in his image. And he created us male and female, and it was good. And that's also very foundational to Judaism. I expect it's foundational for other reasons to other religions like Islam and maybe Hinduism as well. I don't know. But it's certainly anti-Judeo-Christian. Uh, because what psychology is saying is that you create yourself. God doesn't create you, you create yourself. And you can decide whether you're male or female or something in between. And so the idea that you, that's the second issue or it's showing up mostly. The first issue is the sexuality issue, but it's the foundational issue is who creates us? And the emphasis on the self, which is so out in the, which is inevitable in a secular culture because they have nothing else to point to. They have no transcendence in it. So they argue that you create yourself. And that was the temptation of the devil. The thing that offended him, well, anyway, was that we were embodied. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why Our Lady is the primary enemy of Satan. Mm -hmm. She's the a major symbol of embodiment mm -hmm. or incarnation as, as another name. But um, it's a finally going to be a an argument over whether we create ourselves and therefore we can be, there is no human nature. Mm -hmm. If we have a human nature, we can change it. We can change the genetics. We can change uh, the environment and the womb in the first 12 hours, the first 12 days, the first 12 weeks, whatever. We'll intervene and we'll create who we are. And that's the primary emphasis behind the transsexual movement and behind a lot of the other movements that preceded it. And it's another movement that's coming after transsexual, which is still here and has yet to have its impact. And that's the really, I guess you would have to call it the transpersonal movement, right? which says we're going to create ourselves without a body at all. Mm -hmm. We're going to create ourselves perhaps in a, like a computer program, a, a, mm -hmm. a silicon system, you know, and we'll live forever. Mm-hmm. We can upload but our consciousness very clear that, to a hard drive uh, or something like that. Yeah. 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 It's very clear that the transhumanists mm -hmm. want to get rid of our body entirely. And the only people who ever proposed that in the past 
I was very surprised and interested to discover this, were the hardcore Gnostics in the first three or four centuries of the faith. Mm-hmm. They were explicitly antibody, hostile to being embodied, and very especially hostile to women. These were the hardcore Gnostics, not all of them, mm-hmm. but the center of it was to create a human being that had no body. But they had no technology, so it eventually died out. But now they have a technology. <laughs> mercy. <laughs> and this is mercy, yeah, and this is, this is where we're heading. Yeah, um, that, so that's the big problem we're headed toward now. So I guess, like, well, let's backtrack a little bit. You know, you're saying in, and it's right. I mean, if, if, if all life is self-deterministic, and I've said this, I've thought about this before, then that, again, if, and if, then the self is almost an eternity into and of itself apart from everybody else. And at the end of the day, that there, there cannot be transcendence when that's the case. There can't be anything beyond me. And if there's nothing beyond me and my own ego, well then, um, then well at one level, truthfully, it's just a very lonely place to be because because we can't we can't lonely. actually we can't actually share relationship. We can't share life right. in, in, in the sense of that, um, which of course, psychologically speaking, is 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 dangerous and disastrous. Um, where even I think who is it that said that the, the only question was the philosopher that said this. Um, the, the only question that, that really remains is whether to commit suicide or not, you know? Who, yeah, who, well, that's what, yeah. That's what would happen is if we're all, all that there is is this random environment with some of it, which has some lawfulness by, by reasons which we don't understand, but, we, and we're all alone in it. So why do we worship the self? I mean, I guess that's the question. I have no that idea, <laughs> but because people can't get out of it. You know, it's like, we're all such natural narcissists. Mm-hmm. And, and many people can't get out of the, look, let me explain. Do it. We're Christians. We are told that the goal of life is to get out of ourselves by loving others and loving God. That's flourishing. It is self-giving not self-grabbing. And so relationships are at the core of the Christian life. And that means we love others and we love God. And we love ourselves as we love others. I mean, you know, we're not, we can't hate ourselves either any more than anybody else. We we can't hate anybody, including ourselves. Mm -hmm. But growth is, is coming outside, is getting out of ourselves through loving God, self-giving to God, self-giving to others. I'm convinced pathology is self-giving to self until finally the most mentally ill people, psychotics, can't even get out to physical reality. Mm -hmm. They're trapped in the, even the physical reality is controlled by their self, Mm -hmm. by their illusions, their hallucinations. The narcissist is an example of somebody who's halfway toward that. Mm So that as we implode, continually focusing on our own self and trying to get it satisfied, we will increasingly become pathological. <laughs> the paranoid can't see anything, but that isn't affected by it, isn't hostile to it, the self. Mm-hmm. 
but forgetting those extreme cases, <clears throat> plenty of ordinary narcissists like to sit in there and think that this, they're insecure about the self and so supporting it all the time is what they do. And they support it by feeling superior to others because of their, let's say their skepticism, their belief that other people are stupid uh, or ignorant, they're uneducated and so Wrong, forth. I'm right, always, yeah. Yeah, and of course relationship is open to everybody. Mm -hmm. Children, for example, children can have a relationship with God and with Jesus. They can't even understand most natural science. <laughs> but anyway, so, what so we I see think we're called to relationship. Yeah. And that getting out of the self is the problem. But most of us, the secular world only has that to focus on. And it appeals, it's a, one of the problems with self-emphasis is it's a terrific consumer psychology. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if we have stuff to sell, we have to we have to make sure people now, have feel it good. your way. Have it your way. Have mm -hmm. it your way. Mm -hmm. Try it. You'll like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, in all all of consumer science, every commercial starts with a need, and then how that product you know fulfills and that. How need. you can be satisfied by buying my product yourself. That's right. Will be That's right. Or creating a brand that is that is cool and and you, yeah. know, you feel like you're part of it. Um, so it taps into those places. In life, it's about grabbing all the gusto you can. Because you only go around once. Yeah, YOLO, right? YOLO. That's what they say. Grab all the gusto. <laughs> YOLO. You only live <laughs> once. That's it. But it, it is very seductive. Um, and, and certainly, again, uh, it, obviously, like we need, we have technology. We're doing this over technology, so there's great gifts. And we're not, we're not saying, obviously, that, that there's wrong any of it whatsoever. But it's just that there's, when you talk about, okay, so psychology at some point lost its way as a science and became um, a philosophy or became or influenced by, by the philosophies of a modern age and became almost a moral code, a way, yes. a path, that this is a, a, a religion. You know, that's the word that you use in, in your book, Psychology as a Religion, that it becomes its own religion with its own um, uh, sets of implicit ideas, goals. goals, implicit goals, exactly, and direction of what we're supposed to be achieving and, and how, to, uh, how to achieve happiness or, or, uh, or growth in life. And, and while you've said that we've seen growth away from that, even the science, we can talk about the self-esteem movement of the 70s and 80s and seeing how that's failed and how even we've moved away from that, you know, and kind of in psychology, because we recognize that that doesn't, the self-esteem movement didn't um, encourage or, or uh, yeah, encourage young people to actually develop the virtues of grit and, re and resilience, or really didn't even honor how resilience. Yeah. How how esteem comes from knowing from doing something well. Yeah, exactly. Confidence comes from from competencies, you know, and developing those competencies and and, and, yeah. and doing that. You know, that's the only way you can actually know if you're good enough, and, and not just through a through a star or sticker. Um, but but the problem is, as you said, that this has become so widespread, and so while we're seeing certainly some movement towards towards growth uh, with regards to kind of reclaiming the science or even the virtue aspect of it or the rational aspect of things or the relational aspect of things, but in certain realms, this self determinism has has won rampant and has continued to accelerate um, it in 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 droves, and it, specifically in the areas you're talking about with sexuality, that's what we're finding ourselves is with this the, again. 
people are upset right now. We're recording this a couple of days after the, the leak happened, you know, with Roe versus Wade and the possible um, overturning of that, that it seems like it's going to happen. And people are up in arms. And people are up in arms about this because I think this is an affront to their ideology, to their understanding of what freedom is. And a and- recognition that... And what's being argued by the courts, certainly not as a political sense that, hey, we're just going to let the states do it rather than this being at a federal level. But for us as Catholics, we would say that freedom isn't going to come through a procedure or through a technology, that freedom comes through through um, through life in accordance with the truth, with the greatest values, with the greatest goods. And 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 that means a certain recognition of our embodiment as well as part of that conversation. And so we can't ignore our biology. We can't ignore the physical realm or to believe that we have somehow transcended it or have the capacity of transcending it. And so as that's that's where I think we're seeing this, this fissure um, that right. so much of what has become popularized is this notion, as you stated, that this new religion um, prescribes us to overcome our physical limitations and believes that through technological means, we will be able to overcome these physical limitations. And uh, that is very seductive, a very, very seductive ideology um, that is going to result in, in great calamity. Um, and we're seeing- I'm afraid it, it will. Go ahead. But um, there are some things that are better than, than our, we're admitting. Um, Remember, I was saying that self-giving is the essence of flourishing. Mm-hmm. And that means you give to others and you give to God. And one of the things is that it, many of the, look, many of the secular psychologists are, are really quite decent and moral people in many ways. Sure. And in fact, I would say that being a therapist you have a professional role of being a self-giver. The counselor and the psychotherapist in the session, they're giving of themselves by being there and listening to the person, hearing them, sometimes being shouted at, sometimes being hearing snide remarks about them and so forth. And most importantly, often feeling that in spite of all of the ways they gave of himself to the client, somehow or other, the client didn't improve much. I mean, the ability to, the inability to change many patients. And those are sorrowful experiences for the therapist, secular or Christian. And they are failures of self-giving, but not because the therapist didn't try. Maybe because the the, the patient uh, didn't try enough or maybe because it wasn't the right self-giving you know you gave them the wrong you gave them a a cigarette when they needed a cigar or who knows what (laughs) great analogy that's that's what therapists are we're just yeah don't 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 take me too seriously there but uh, (laughs) um but so many therapists implicitly understand self-giving as part of growth right but they still have this notion that what you're self-giving to is the isolated self or ego of the other person. Mm-hmm. But no, that other person has to begin to self-give as well. And maybe the first thing their therapist has to learn is how to how to allow the therapist, I mean the patient, to accept your gifts. 
discuss the very idea that they will be willing to accept whatever you might be able to contribute to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and we see that obviously in the research supports that there's pretty much across the board, every modality is about scientifically, you know, every every evidence-based modality is about more or less effective. And what comes down is the relationship what? that every modality more or less is, is, is at the same level of effectiveness. You know, when we look at different, different, at least evidence-based ones, but the, the main indicator that's the difference is the relationship with the therapist, the relationship yes. with the counselor. That's the way that you, that you, that you measure. That, um, that's outcome. the foundational, the foundational positive. And, and so certainly I agree that, you know, as we're going back to this, that like, yeah, no, anybody who signs up to do this type of work is coming out of a place of, of desire to help humanity, a desire to want to help others, a desire to want to be of service to, 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 to people who are suffering, whether they're coming at it from a secular perspective or from a right. Christian and one. And that's where we have to recognize the secular motivation is certainly a positive kind. Correct. Because this work isn't, isn't easy. I mean, that's no. That's the other. That's the other problem. <laughs> it's hard work. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I mean because of the difficulty of knowing exactly how to intervene, exactly how to help the other person, and of having to live with the extent to which you feel you haven't helped or you failed, and you've been empathic and supportive, but now you feel burned out. Yep. Because you haven't had the kind of impact that you wanted. Your gifts were not either good enough or were at least not received. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's humbling uh, because you put a lot of your, your effort into it. And despite having boundaries in place, of course, you're, it's, it is a relationship and, and you are giving. And, uh, and you only have so much energy to be able to give in a day. But you're right in terms of listening and knowing when to adopt, when to, when to challenge somebody, when to back off, when to let them kind of figure it out on their own. There's a there's an art to to this that that every skilled therapist, again, whether secular Absolutely. or otherwise, Absolutely. has to learn how to how to do it. Um, and so that is absolutely the challenge. And so I agree. Certainly, we, we we're not going to say that you know it, that modern psych, psychotherapists are wrong or are bad. But again, this is where we go back to if 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 we don't have a notion of what the goal is, all of that empathy. Um, becomes challenging to, to say, okay, well, well, not challenging in the sense that like, what are we really guiding our clients towards? And of course, this is where a good model, good theory helps us to be able to right. you know, set up a set of goals and a set of interventions and a set of way of being able to assess those interventions or helping. And there is something different in terms of just saying, okay, how do we help a person through a particular problem, A, versus, you know, a broadening this out to a way of life or to a religion. And, 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 and there's maybe there's differences there that we can help somebody through whatever challenges they have. And this is what I say also, you know, in terms of my work, like I'm always telling my clients, my job here is to work myself out of a job, you know, like, like I, I want to help you as much as possible. I want to guide you. But, uh, and if it takes a couple of years, it takes a couple of years for us to get to where we need to get to. We'll take, we'll go as long as we can. But at some point, my, my, if I've done my job well, then, then you no longer need to come see me. And, uh, and we'll, we'll, ce- we'll celebrate those days. All right, everybody. Taking a quick break from my conversation here with Dr. Paul Witz. To encourage you to check out this new game put out by Sophia Institute Press. The game is called Know Thyself, the Game of Temperaments. 
It is a card game. Think of it like apples to apples, where if you, you know, card games, you have a, a free or utter nonsense, one of those type of games where you're making a comparison and try to try to have a judge who determines the best comparison of those cards. But the difference between this game and those games is that you're the apple. You're the one that's being compared and that's being judged, actually, but in a fun way. And so the way the game works is that you pick one person in that's it's playing and you say, who is this person? And everybody else puts down the cards that they have in their hand that they think best describes that person. The individual to the left or to the right, depending how you want to play, is the judge who grabs those cards and determines which of those cards actually does the best at describing the person that is in question. And then you keep moving around through everybody and you do that as many times as you need until the first person has five wins. And so this game was a lot of fun. We played it as a family recently. And really what it did for us was it helped us to better understand each other. And to me, truly, it was an encouraging experience to see how the boys think about me, how they think about their mom, how they think about each other. And so certainly we were, you know, we were polite and respectful to one another because honestly, going into the game, I was a little nervous about whose feelings were going to get hurt if we didn't put down the right cards or, or who might be uh, a little bit sensitive based on how we described them. But none of that came to pass in the game. Although the kids did say that if they were playing with their friends, they probably would have been trash talking a little bit more, probably would have been a little bit more jabbing in the descriptions of the cards that they would put down for each other. Nevertheless, the game was a ton of fun. We look forward to playing it again. I have a link to it in the show notes, but the game again is called Know Thyself, the game of temperament, and you can check it out, put out by Sophia Institute Press. Let's get back into this conversation with Dr. Paul Vitz. Um, going back to the notion then that, because some people, people come to me or people ask me for counseling because, because I am a Catholic therapist and because they want to be able to, to bring their faith into the work from a cultural perspective, but then also just from, from a religious perspective and knowing that, that they're, they're not going to be guided in a way that is contra to their, their, their sincere held beliefs. Um, so I, I guess going back to this notion of kind of psychology as a religion, even though therapists are, are secular therapists are, are, are skilled and are qualified and are giving of themselves, I mean, it, is it though that you, you find that are they still kind of operating out of this, this kind of place, this secularism? And what would be the dangers of, of, of operating out of that space in, in the clinical realm? The dangers would be that they don't really reach the depth of the person because most people have some kind of deep religious character to their personality, religious experience as part of their life. That, and they don't reach out to the very high level desire for flourishing, for what do I want to do with my life? In a certain sense, patients come in because the story of their life is broken down. And, what, and they can't leave until the story of their life now has a new, a new meaning that both takes into account the past, but has a new way of being sensible and allowing flourishing and growth. Mm-hmm. And for many patients, religion is very, very important for that. In fact, I would think for the majority. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an interesting example recently, uh, a Harvard, professor named Rossmarin, uh, he's cognitive behavioral psychologist uh, at, at Harvard McLean Hospital, 
is Jewish. And he discovered that when he would deal with his patients, Judaism and how they understood it and bring that in as part of the cognitive behavioral therapy, they got better faster. In other words, right. it's an empirical issue here that this is an important part of a person and that if you bring it in, it can be used in a positive way to help them come to a, a new way of flourishing in their own life. And that doesn't depend upon any, I mean, each Jewish person probably had a very sort of different experience, something of a different theology and so on and so forth. But the topic had to be brought in. And if it was brought in, it facilitated their development. And so all of a sudden they've discovered this even at Harvard. And so- Well, it must be true if they discovered it at Harvard, right? <laughs> <laughs> if Harvard but, says know, it, I'm just yeah. sorry. So what I'm saying is- The magisterial has spoken. Now. I'm <laughs> optimistic now that we're going to discover this in psychology all around. As long as we can deal with that first big problem about how if we can deal with sexuality and the overemphasis on self. But in any case, I think that. Well, hopefully at some point, as you're as you're indicating that if we're seeing this trend happening across the board in other aspects of psychology, then hopefully yes. at some point we start get back to it, you know, when it comes to the sexual side of things as well. I think so. You know, as you're talking, something that came to my mind is is going back to this notion of self-actualization that Rogers and Maslow and others have have, have argued yeah. for. That it's it's almost like a, a a secular call to holiness. I guess would probably be the way that I would articulate it, in the sense that like when when we become saints, like. The goal, of course, is through this act of love, through this worship of God, that a transformation does happen interiorly, that we do become the best versions of ourselves, as, as some popular speakers say, that we do, in fact, grow and to become a, or even as John Paul II says, that, you know, that this perfectly mature intersubjectivity, that we achieve perfection in understanding who we are and who we are in the context of relationship. And that's one way of being able to think about the communion of saints is that perfection personality of of self that the limitations have have been fully assumed by by Christ and by by the Holy Spirit by the love of the Trinity and that we do exist in this this eternal kind of you know ability of 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 being a community and being the individual at the same time in terms of the best version of ourselves and the best version of humanity as we are assumed into the love of the Trinity which they themselves are experiencing that um, and so the idea of self-actualization, I guess, is, 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 is erroneous in the sense that we can't actualize ourselves. We can't fulfill our potential by our own being. But right. that the idea of being called to a higher self or a better version of ourself, or that the possibility of us growing and improving um, is, in fact, what Christianity does call us to. And Absolutely. Absolutely. That's Thoughts. called redemption. Amen. Christians, it's we were redeemed. We're redeemed in Christ. And we've just finished this, you know, this big meta model at mm -hmm. DMU on this mm -hmm. as a framework for understanding the person. And the first three um, premises are we're created by God in the image of God. Therefore, everybody is of great value and equal dignity. Second, we're fallen. So we have problems, which of course keeps psychologists busy so they don't complain about that, that, <laughs> yes. that, that premise. And third, we're redeemed. And we say we're redeemed through Christ. 
But the secularists like Rogers would say we were redeemed through self-actualization. That's their secular form of redemption. The problem is it won't work. It doesn't work very well. But we are discovering that in psychology. And because we've discovered the virtues, we've rediscovered at least philosophy and probably theology. In fact, Seligman says he, don't, he won't deal with the theological and philosophical issues, but they're absolutely relevant now. Mm-hmm. So we're going to rediscover the highest forms of what it is to live and what flourishing is really about. We will rediscover, I think, if it, when I'm really optimistic, we, we will rediscover God or the transcendent nature of our calling. Well, this or might sound beings. like a simple question then, So, but, but lay it out for me. Like, Why fundamentally can we not achieve self-actualization on our own? Because we don't know who we are. We have to discover who we are. God created us. And when we discover what God created in us by paying attention to him and paying attention to others, we learn who we are. And that's how we learn to flourish in the most profound sense. If we just try to decide by ourselves. We're, we're blinded by our own self-interest, by our own narcissism. We're blinded by, uh, by the very things that cause our pathologies. We're blinded by our hatreds. We're blinded by our, uh, our, our, our vices, by lust. We're blinded by, you know, all of those things. And that's why we can't find uh, true fulfillment using our own judgment, because our judgment is deeply flawed. And that's the meaning of, of, of uh, really, of original sin. We need help. Hmm. And that help is an offense to the ego in many cases. But ultimately, we do need help, and we need help from, from others. And we do that by asking God for help, and sometimes we're asking others for help, or at least being open to giving to them. Yeah, because but that's how we get created in the in the in the true virtues of humility and of, of love and of faith. And I think we that when I'm optimistic, I think we'll discover this because it's it's true. It's true. The only danger is the the power of uh, of the evil one to keep us from that even at, at the cultural level, which less individually. That is correct. And our reluctance, as you said, our, our, our need also to protect ourselves. And so if we yes. ascribe to these things as being true, then our defense mechanisms kick in and we fight for them. Absolutely. And when we're afraid, our defense mechanisms are responses to fear. And Scripture is very clear, but what fear is useless. I don't think it's useless. It can be very harmful because <laughs> it, it, when we're fearful, we create these defenses that will distort us and often hurt other people as well as ourselves. And, we, and what we're called to is love. And we know that perfect love drives out fear. 
So that fear then is left behind when you're involved in a perfect love. But that perfect love takes time <laughs> to achieve. You bet. It takes time <laughs> and you have to overcome fear and it isn't like it isn't difficult. That's for sure. And we have to be willing to be corrected and, and be right. willing to be, to be humbled to be at wrong. times. To be wrong. And again, if we just go back to the notion of just self as being the end um, and some of the stuff that's purported certainly with regards to self-esteem and um, is that we aren't then challenged to um, to grow. There's no inherent conflict. You know, when we think about suffering and the role of suffering that it plays in, in our faith, it's not that God wills it or desires it, um, but that sometimes God uses it and often God uses it as as moments for us to kind of gut check and uh, and to, to sift through um, desires or to sift through um, thoughts, um, notions about God. I know in my own life, anytime I've had major crises of faith or doubts, those have been opportunities that, I mean, while I don't wish to go through them again, they've been incredibly refining of, of, of my life and of my faith. Um, and that means that there is inherent meaning that's present even in those difficulties and that we don't but, just... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Without pain and failure, you wouldn't even learn how to walk. That's a very true statement. <laughs> See you that with my kids. <laughs> it would be too, you know, if you couldn't have pain and you, why, you know, you wouldn't learn how to walk. It's from falling down. It's from those errors that you learn to walk. And so many other things are learned the same way throughout life. And, and suffering, therefore, has that this foundational meaning that it's okay. And that's what God tells us in the life of our Lord. If God can send his son into this world and allow him to suffer the way that he did, it's telling you that somehow or other, suffering in some mysterious way is okay. Hmm. Because he's given you an example that it's, he's willing to allow it for himself in the form of his son. And he's telling you that it leads in essence in some foundational way to a new life, to a resurrection. And in some way, unless we fall into the ground and as a seed and decay and die, nothing like a new tree can grow. And so somehow that's in the nature of life itself and it's okay. And you can use it as a, something positive in your life. And even if you can't do that, if you can't see how it's positive, if you can't do that, you know you can accept it because you can accept it through our Lord. That's the great challenge of life. Buddhism says the answer to suffering is to get rid of the sufferer. That is to get rid of the self who suffers by getting rid of all desire. But of course, our greatest desire is for love. And we believe that love is the great goodness of life, the great positive. So we don't try to get rid of the suffering self who wants to find love. We give them a, we give them a way to find love and to accept suffering. 
Amen. 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 <laughs> and I want to do say this while Please. we're here. Yeah. We have put out this model of the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called the Catholic Christian meta model of the person. And it's not a theory of personality. It's a framework for understanding the person that can facilitate uh, case uh, development and your case histories and can uh, broaden the number of issues that you bring in to bear on the possible problems of the client. Yeah, amen. Bring in other issues that psychology tends to have ignored, not that they don't believe in them, but they tend to have, have ignored virtues and they've ignored our vocations. That is, what are we? What kind of life we're called to? Married or single? Are we called to? What kind of job and work and so forth? Those tend to have been ignored in psychotherapy. Correct. But look it up. It's a great model to start with if you want to see how. And the the, the Catholic part is mostly in the philosophical support. The theology is just basic Christianity. So how would you see then? an understanding of the person through the Catholic lens or Christian lens influencing psychotherapy or influencing the science? Right. I would, first of all, it would argue that these big issues of what is, what is our redemption in psychotherapy? What is our philosophical and moral rationale for what we think of as that? From the secular point of view, they need to identify what their goals are like at that level and defend them. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're challenging them to do. Tell well, us what your real flourishing, what is the real end point of the... They don't have an answer for it. They, I mean, they would say that's all self-deterministic, right? I mean, that's... Well, they might, but they might say it's... I mean, Seligman says it's the virtues. Seligman it's does, the yeah. the growth and the virtues. And after that, he'd say, if you say which virtues and how and so mm-hmm. forth, you might say, well, that's up to partly up to philosophy and perhaps even theology. So he's yeah. left open that the answer of a theological uh, component in the in the in our psychological understanding of redemption. Which I'm just going to pause here for a second and say that I'm grateful for that in the psychology literature, but in the counseling literature, we're well behind. You know, we're not even we're not. I didn't even learn positive psychology in in any of my coursework. It wasn't until I years know after. one of the problems with positive psychology is it hasn't influenced most of the psychotherapists enough. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example where there, this is just starting. Positive psychology is the experimental study of the virtues and how you grow. You know, let's take the virtue of courage. How does it develop? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Let's take the virtue of gratitude. How does it develop? Uh, take the virtue of hope, altruism. These virtues, which are proposed by positive psychologists and studied, <clears throat> are now available. And this, this is as possible interventions. In other words, the virtues are possible interventions in a kind of cognitive therapy setting where you'd give somebody homework in doing the virtue. <laughs> so <clears throat> you tell the person, who's, let's say you have a person who's very depressed or moderately depressed. Let's say moderate depression, not extreme depression. That can be something else sometimes. 
moderately depressed person. So that you give them the homework to, I, I would like you to be more grateful to the things you have in life. You talk about these things that depress you, but look, I see somebody here who's 23 years old, you look healthy, you're relatively attractive as a person, you're getting educated, you have a job. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't have those things. You have a parent or two, maybe you have siblings, you know, whatever. And so you give them homework in, in gratitude. And you tell them you have to learn how to be grateful. So I want you to write a letter to somebody every day that you're, to somebody you're grateful for something they've done and bring those letters back to me next week. Mm-hmm. Or let's say you have somebody whose problem is anxiety. They're afraid. So what you have to, they have to learn something about courage. So what you have to find are a set of little exercises that help them deal with anxiety. Little steps. So they overcome, all right, get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> You're anxious about the day, of course, get out of bed. So you arrange that in the morning, you have some, the alarm clock will go off and you have to tell me what you did and what time you got up after you woke up and et cetera, et cetera. And then you went down and you had breakfast and so on, whatever. And then your problem was you, you had to go to school. Well, you called up a friend who would go with you to school or some, you know, you were afraid to go to school. So you got, you broke it down into little steps that you learned. Or let's say um, the person is a narcissist and you want them to stop thinking about themselves all the time. So what you do is give them the virtue of altruism. Every day you have to find somebody in your ordinary life that you can give something to that will help them, can be nice to them, altruistic. They don't expect it. And you, so what it means is every day you have to look at another person Think, what is it that they need? What is it that they want? And then give it to them. Or if you can do it, you know, maybe it's a compliment. Maybe, you know, you loan them a dollar for their you know, lunch. Maybe you, maybe you tell them how well dressed they look. Maybe you tell them some other, you know, you, you look for something to give them. You get outside of yourself to think about the other. And by the way, you might get a compliment back. And most narcissists get a lot of compliments because they sort of try to get them. Mm-hmm. But they recognize they're sort of grabbing onto somebody to make them say something nice. But they might get an honest compliment from somebody that they surprised by doing something nice to them. Mm-hmm. And that would be something good for them. Anyway, the basic idea is that the virtues constitute possible interventions that could be done using cognitive behavioral therapy techniques and homework uh, in a way that what would happen is that the your client would learn a virtue that would counteract their weakness or their pathology. But that's where we are. We have to do that. It hasn't been well done yet. That that is that's correct. I mean, I I use a lot of those interventions that you spoke about only because I've discovered you know positive psychology here in the last few years, and. Um, but I, I derailed you. I asked you an earlier question, and then I went off talking about how I didn't yeah. learn this stuff in counseling. But you said that the profession, as 
the meta model that you that 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 you've offered uh, through the work at DMU provides answers to these bigger questions. And where yes. you're challenging the profession as a whole is to say, you need to do the same thing. You need to help yes. us understand who the person is in, 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 in the context of, of how you see them. Yes. And after 120 years of psychotherapy developing, uh, they're ready for this. It's, 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 it's timely now. Mm -hmm. When they were first beginning, they were so involved in what Seligman called negative psychology, studying our pathologies and our problems and what caused them that they didn't have time to look at, the, at now what do you do once you've understood the problems you've done the best you can with them freud even said you know he said the best psychoanalysis can do is to return the patient to the normal level of human misery <laughs> well you know okay that's an optimistic statement <laughs> the normal level of human misery is what most people also wish to escape right. and that's where the concept of flourishing comes in and that's where positive psychology comes in. Because Seligman called Freudian psychology negative, and he wasn't being critical. He was just saying it was focused on our negative aspects. Correct. So I think the time is here where these bigger questions to be addressed and the seculars have to address them themselves. Fine. They may come up with something rather like the ancient uh, Stoics mm -hmm. or something like that. Although I read a paper recently that said that the ancient Stoics, and this is about the third century BC now, being looked at, that they did have a notion of God. They weren't Christian, but they had a notion of God. Mm -hmm. Probably sort of Platonic or Aristotelian or something like that. Yeah. And so the science has to, the secular sciences have to, have to answer that question. And they've been reluctant to, I think, you know, as just thinking about in my own clinical training, those broader questions were just left with a question mark and were left to be, again, determined by every single person as they see fit, which is why spirituality and religion were, were, were hush hush. They were things that were just, yes. you can't talk about those things because that's not really the realm of what we do. But as you've argued, you know, in our conversation and, and elsewhere, obviously, for, for a long time, that we can't ignore those conversations. We can't ignore. We can't. We can't because we can't. we're intrinsically made of these different components. We have a theological component. We have a philosophical component, and we have also a social psychological component. And we have a you know I mean a social component, cultural component, and a psychological. And we are an integration of those. And so when you're dealing with somebody in therapy, you can't ignore uh, the, these higher levels of the of the philosophical and theological. Yeah, they're, and so there. they're there. And so the fact that the profession wants to ignore them, to me says more about the profession than it does about the, per the client, you know, that's about right. the person. And the person needs it. And that's why I like what Rosman did. He discovered the importance of the, of the Jewish aspects of life for his Jewish patients. And that had nothing to do with psychology per se. It was religious aspects in the life of his patients. And when you dealt with them and helped the person with that, they, they got well quicker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you brought the whole self into the... Into the, the, whole the whole person was brought into the, into the arena of therapy. So some of it, again, going back to this, I know we're kind of, we're, we're at an hour here, but some, you know, 
it, is it that the profession, because it started with a critical eye towards religion, that it's been slow to welcome it back into the discussion, or, or what 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 contributed to that? Uh, there were a number of things. One was they did start with a critical. Uh, many of the founders were critical of religion in mm-hmm. their personal lives yeah. for reasons that we could go into, but not here or now. And second, they wanted psychology to be a science. And obviously, religion isn't a science. It can be reasonable, can be et cetera, et cetera, but it's not an empirical science. And so they wanted to make psychology an empirical science as far as that would go. But they've run out of the ability to do that anymore. Once you go to choosing a virtue to flourish, you're not in the world of science now. You're in the world of telos, choosing. It's not determinism. You're choosing how to grow. And so what's happened is the natural science model has run out of gas in terms of being able to help explain the person. And so they've backed into philosophy and morality and implicitly theology. That's a good answer. (laughs) That's a good answer. (laughs) Well, because even for me, if you chart the history of it and you say, okay, so we start with it being a science empirical divorce from any notions of faith or anything larger, but then as you said, we're dealing with people and, and people just aren't signed. We're not just algorithms that can be studied the same way that algae can be studied in a Petri dish. Like yeah. it's not, or, or a computer program could be studied through mathematics. Um, we're, we're not that. And so to reduce us to simply that, it kind of seems that's where, in, when you argue that when psychologists are losing its way into the self-esteem, self-actualization kind of conversation, at that point, it already moved away from just being a science. It moved away yes. from, from just being uh, uh, something that, that's merely in the observable space. Um, and so if we move into that, then you, then you observe that tradition, so to speak, that emerges out of that. And you can look at that scientifically and say, this ain't working. There's something missing here. We're, we're, we're seeing that this isn't helping people the way that it was initially promulgated or promised that it would. And so now what do we do? Well, now we're already out of the realm of science, and now we're we're dabbling in these questions of philosophy and, and personhood and, and what does it mean to be a person? How do we lead somebody into that? And so then that's when these broader questions of, hey, again, let's look at attachment. Let's look at relationships. Hey, let's you got look, it, Mario. You got it. <laughs> let's look at flourishing and let's ask these questions of what it means. And so who has the answers to those? And then there we can say, oh, well, look at that. The ancient philosophies have have, have been discovering and talking about this stuff for a long time. Yes. And so, so how do we start bridging those two together? And that's what gives me hope as a profession is that hopefully um, there can be more openness to conversations about religion, about theology, about faith without it being an imposition, without it, without fear of it being an imposition onto the client or a threat to the therapist, quite honestly, is probably more where it comes from. You know, that's what I was saying earlier is that it's many times it's a threat to the therapist and their notions of, of, of faith um, than it has anything to do with the client and him or herself. Um, and so, so this is the work that we have to do. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, this is the time for it, for it to come out and, the thing is, religion, most of them in any way, certainly, certainly Christianity, says things have to be freely chosen. Correct. And you cannot impose a religion and have it 
valid, at least to put it this way, an imposed Christianity is not a valid Christianity for that person. Amen. 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 It has to be freely chosen. And this is important. So you get rid of this notion of, of controlling the patient. You can't do that. The patient has to have freedom, freedom to choose. And so does the therapist. And they, they cannot, there cannot be a position. People have to discover the truth as they move through it, and they may move through it in a very different way, depending upon who they are and what religion they're coming from. So you give them, they always have to have that freedom, no imposition. But we're there, we need to do all of this. The person is not just psychological. We all know they're partly biological. Mm -hmm. So we have psychiatrists giving us pills. <laughs> but in any case, we're, we're biological, we're psychological, but we're also philosophical and theological. And that's what our meta model points out. And this involves other aspects of the person that have to be addressed, some of which are perf perfectly agreeable to secularists. And others, when we say redemption through Christ, they'll say, no, fine. But what you redeem the person through has to be mentioned. There's one interesting example. There are some people called narrative psychotherapists mm -hmm. who look at psychotherapy as the construction of a new narrative or story of the person's life. And recently they've been talking about this narrative that ends the therapy as a redemptive narrative. They use the word redemptive to describe the story that the person leaves with as a way of understanding how their future life will be lived. So we're there. So, so nothing imposed. Right. Be open to the, 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 the alternatives of your secularist or other religious positions, but recognize we've got to go to the higher meanings in life. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's it, you know. I think some of it is a fear of, I don't know, I don't know if it's this, this Pentecostalism or this kind of prosperity gospel that's become popular as well, that maybe some of the secularists look at that and they're like, well, that's that's it. Look, at that's not, an imp that's not freedom. That person's imposing a sort of healing on this individual or this notion that you have to go back to these, you know, core wounds or things of that nature, you know, this kind of spiritual kind of healing stuff that it's like you can look at that and be like, well, that's not, but that's not what we're arguing for. That's not what I'm arguing for. No, the, the person is free to do that. Yeah. Certainly. But Certainly. we're not arguing for that. In I'm therapy. not arguing for that in therapy. Brief, that's no. no, that's not what I'm arguing Brief, for no. in therapy. No, <laughs> no, no, no. But, but, it, we, but I think sometimes that's, I mean, those are the examples that were kind of thrown out, you know, almost almost like as if you're just lumped into that. You know, why, as if, why, those, are, those aren't therapies. I know they are, but I'm just, that's just the stuff that. I'm not saying they're <laughs> bad. I'm just saying that it's a different it's phenomenon. Not, it's a different phenomenon. Yeah, and that's he, right. and they were almost always phenomenon that the person who went into it chose to go into. Correct. On, by voluntary choice. Uh, so, but the other thing to think about therapy, sometimes I find this helpful. Psychotherapy is a conversation with another with another person but it's one of the most it may be the single most intimate conversation they ever have in life because you're talking about really important things in a long-term developmental interpretation of that person by somebody who's helpful and on your side and 
you may never have that degree of intimacy with anybody else in your life, uh, at least intellectual intimacy and understanding problems. And so therefore you have to talk about these important issues. But remember, it's not about Bible thumping and it's not about uh, ecstatic jumping. It's a conversation that allows the entire aspect of the other, of the client, all the parts of that person to be present and addressed. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that, that's beautiful. I agree. I mean, and for me, that's what I've always felt. I've always, I, I say this, I mean, I just believe this, just that it, it's a privilege that people share with me, the stuff that they share. And, and, and I know that the secrecy is part of the cross of the work that we do, going back to this being a self-gift, that sometimes you interact with these folks out in public and, and you know, you're not supposed to say anything, but that's part of what we sign up for. And, and it is, it's a, it is a sincere privilege that people are willing to share those, those, those most intimate parts of themselves and to want to grow in discovery of that. Because sometimes, as you said earlier, the reason we can't self-actualize ourselves is because we don't know ourselves. We don't understand all of our deeper motivations. We have to understand who we have been created to be. And, and, and we need to have somebody who can gently help us kind of face that, you know, and face those areas of, 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 of weakness, to face those areas of brokenness or the limitations that we have, and to, to try to come to a better understanding as to why they're present, what those pathologies are, so that we can grow in a greater sense of love for others. Um, and that ultimately is the goal of psychotherapy, of counseling, is to be able to help the person do that. Absolutely. So, well, Dr. Vitz, I, I want to honor your time. I, I know we've gone over here and, uh, and just yeah. been incredibly grateful <laughs> for the conversation that we've just had. It's been very, very, very enriching. Well, they're very welcome, <laughs> and I hope they're useful. And when you have a, a final ID on it, send it back to me so I can know how to reference it. Will do. So a uh, couple things just to kind of wrap us up. Um, first, you had mentioned the meta model. Um, how can people get a hold of that? Um, where can people go to purchase that? Well, the meta model, it's called a, Catholic, a Catholic Christian meta model of the person. There are three editors. One is Vitz. <laughs> Who's that guy? <laughs> one is Nordling and one is uh, uh, Titus. Mm -hmm. And those are the three editors. Uh, you can get it. Uh, you can get it up. Look on Amazon or any place like that. I suppose. I think you can get it at uh, various outlets. But uh, you can get it as soft cover, hard cover is expensive. Um, paperback is I don't know forty five bucks. That's not too bad. Mm -hmm. It's over seven hundred pages. And at very worst, if you don't like it, it's a good doorstop. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> don't heavy. Don't tell anybody I said that. <laughs> well, you just did. It's on the podcast, but that's all right. So. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but look, it's Glow, a first. Glowing endorsement of a, your own book. <laughs> look, it's a first for psychology to have this claim that you need to deal with the person, not just in psychological sense, but you need to bring in your philosophy and your theology. Amen. Amen. You have to look at the person as a whole. And, the whole. Uh, and, and we can't ignore that. And I think that's, yes. that's the argument is that we ignore it to our peril um, because, because it's a f if, if the science is a study of the human person and the human behavior, then you have to look at the person in the totality of who they are and, and not just as, you know, um, clubs of 
glue that just happened to <laughs> form consciousness in this particular well, look, moment uh, of time. The closest so. to our emphasis on the higher level would be some of the work of Viktor Frankl yeah. that many people already know about. Of course. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna talk about him earlier, but we went in a different direction. But it is, but, but so there is a but even to that point that there's an opening within the within psychology with counseling within that within the science of of, of exploring this because yes. um, obviously you know it, his his book Man's Search for Meaning has sold bazillion copies and everybody loves it because it's just an incredible story. Um, in terms of how to understand and find meaning. So it's great. Okay, so the meta model, I will have a link to that in the show notes. Very good. On Amazon, and we, Amazon. Want, you know, we want the meta model out there because we want the whole field to move forward by addressing these higher aspects of the person. It, and I will tell the casual user that it's that it's a, it's an academic text. It's not a, it's not at a yeah, popular level. Yeah, it is level. academic. Yeah, it's not I, at the popular unfortunately, level. Unfortunately, it's not in, in that sense. It's a mm-hmm. serious, uh, challenging kind of read. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Okay, final question I ask all my first-time guests. Uh, Dr. Vitz, what gives you hope? What? What gives you hope? Gives me hope? The only thing that really gives me hope is Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I have other things to give me hope, but they're, you know, psychology could get better. Um, the world could get wiser, um, but I don't have much hope in normal, normally in what we would call politics, cultural change. We could have a regression of culture for 500 years, who knows? Uh, my hopes are at the transcendent level only. So I, 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 my hope is in our Lord, and I hope my hope is in heaven. Good answer. Thank you for saying that. Okay. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Dr. Ritz, thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast today. Um, many blessings to you and the, and the good work that you continue to do. Adios. Well, that does it for today's episode. Thanks so much for hanging in there all the way through. I pray that this conversation has helped you better understand the importance of these philosophical and theological understandings of the human person and why these aren't just kind of concepts that are out there, but are significant for our own personal psychological and emotional development because God desires us to be whole people, whole people who grow in holiness and spiritual life, but also who grow emotionally and have a better understanding of what our psychological issues are. So if you've enjoyed this episode, again, please leave a comment, write a review, or or share it on the socials with others. And check out past episodes of the Always Hope podcast. We have wonderful conversations related to psychological health through many, many different episodes that we've talked about these issues. So God bless everybody. Have a great day. Be good. Be good.